All right, Kevin, thank you for joining me uh, today. We have the founder and the uh, chief creative officer, the head taco maker. Uh, I could come up with a lot of funny names for you, Kevin, but uh, one of my friends, um, Kevin McCarney, and his brand is Piquito Moss, which when I lived in LA was my absolute favorite place to go uh, prior to even running into and, and getting to know Kevin. Um, one of the things I love most about your brand, Kevin, is the commitment to quality. And I think not in all cases, so I want to make sure I put a little asterisk there, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, fast casual is not known for quality. So I want to start with a question. What does quality mean to you and, and how do you execute it at Piquito Moss? Well, I think I, I have always thought like the customer. And I'm not in business unless the customer comes back. And so if I don't reach a level of quality that inspires that customer to come back, then I won't have a business or my business will wane and, and uh, peter out. But I'm always thinking that I've, we've got to produce a product that is so good and uh, every single time that it reaches I have a scale of one to 10 and I call it the inspiration scale. If, if a restaurant doesn't reach the, a five on the inspiration scale, I don't go back. So if we don't reach, a, 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 I'm, I'm always want to be in that nine, 10 category with my customers, but if we don't reach into that top level of inspiration, we're not going to have people come back. And so whether it's the food, the service, the atmosphere, the cleanliness, everything factors into that, that feeling that people get when they go to a restaurant, because it's a feeling that they get. It's not just the, the food, but it's the feeling they get when they go to a restaurant. It's a familiar face behind the counter uh, or at the table. And it's that feeling, I think, that I've always thought of as if, if I'm producing something, how's the customer going to feel about this? And if, if they don't feel like, you know, a nine or a 10, then we're not doing our job. We may, you know, we may modulate sometimes, but, 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 depending on how busy or crazy it is. But for the most part, I'm always thinking that we have got to, quality to me is going to be uh, um, that inspiration that brings people back. So when you, when you were first starting the, the business, and I believe it was in 1985, right? 84. 84, okay. You know, you, you obviously, you got a, a blank slate. You're, you're the entrepreneur. You've got no, you know, scar tissue or anything you because you haven't been battered and beat beat down by the business yet well not so, not, not 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 in it as an owner but not as yes. an owner right right so you're sitting there and you're going okay i want to make amazing mexican food you love mexican food it's you can see it in everything that you do but like did you originally say like i'm gonna make all the tortillas by scratch uh, from scratch by hand I'm going to have the best quality ingredients. Like, was that a day one or did, did you grow into that? Well, actually, when the tortillas, we had to grow into it because I, you know, we started with 600 square feet and $500 when I opened the door. And so we started with having to buy tortillas, you know, uh, and, and instead of making from scratch like we do now. And so, but we always wanted to care. We cared about the quality of the food we were buying, even the quality of the tortillas and it was, it was always a quality thing because, again, that's, that's one of those things that you can't fool a customer. You, it, if you serve them a poor quality food, you can't call it great quality and have them accept that. You know, you can't, you can't uh, spin quality when it comes to uh, something that people are putting inside their mouth and then inside their body. You have got to produce. You've got to deliver. So I think what happens is when I look at this, it was, it's always about how do I – how do I maintain this quality? How do I get it? And how do I improve it every single day? How do I make this a little bit better? Uh, because, it, you know, you're sitting behind the first, you know, couple months behind the counter, I was by myself. I was the only person there. I had a lot of lonely days. You know, we didn't, we didn't start off with a bang. We started off with, oh, I had cute, a little place in the neighborhood. And it wasn't for a couple more months. And I hired my first employee, who is still working with me today, by the way, uh, that that we were able to sort of then started getting a line and all of a sudden producing more stuff. And I could, I could afford to buy and, and, and do better. So always looking for how can I make it better? How can I make 
the, the tortilla better? How can I make the, the steak better? How can I make, you know, uh, all the beverages? How can I make everything a little bit better? And I don't think that ever ends for an entrepreneur because you're always trying to make it better. And I know so many people in the restaurant business, you're never sat, you know, I never get there. You're, you're on your, it's always a journey. You're, you're going, but it's always trying to get better, trying to make everything a little bit better. So when we got to the point where um, it took me, what, about nine months and seven, I can call them prototypes now, but uh, mistakes in terms of producing the corn tortilla press that we now have NSF certified to make fresh corn tortillas in house, because that to me was was a, a journey and I had to get that done. And, and like everything, you, you just, you keep trying to make it a little bit better, a little bit better. You get to a certain level and you go, okay, now how, how can I go up from here? How can I make this a little bit better? How can I make, you know, the atmosphere a little bit nicer? You know, it, and it, it's an entrepreneur's dream and nightmare is that we're never satisfied, you know, and it's a CFO's nightmare because we're always spending money on the next thing. You know, the next day, oh, I need this because I need to make this better. And anybody in the money side of the business will know exactly, oh, yeah, those crazy entrepreneurs, they just, they just, they just want to keep spending money on new things and make them better. But that's what we do. We, we just keep making things better until, you know, and then we do what we can for our employees. How do, we, how do we pay them or how do we make it better for them and how do we keep them around? So it's an, a constant journey on trying to make things a little bit better. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to stop. Well, you brought up something that kind of hits close to home with me, which is, you know, I see it in the food and in the service and it's why it's my favorite place to go. But what do you think happens when, and I won't name them by names because we don't want to be disparaging of any other brand, but like you see these other brands, let's take one that's similar to you that grow and then now you can't even walk in there. I mean, they're dirty, they're poorly run. Like what, what do you think it is? Is it the entrepreneur has left and the spirit of the restaurant is gone and it's just now run by, you know, a corporation that really doesn't believe in the same values. I mean, like why do these restaurants when they're sold or get to a certain point, just collapse on quality? Well, that is a brilliant question that answers itself. Uh, because you're, I think that is the point. I think that, you know, the entrepreneur, they, when com- companies buy uh, little companies, like the people who want to buy us and just kind of flip the, flip it, you know, make it, you know, run it. They, they buy it and they want it. They, they, they buy a company and they go, how do we pay off the money we just spent? Well, they have a couple options. The first thing they do is they start looking at the, the, all the food. Oh, this is too high. You, they're using a higher quality. We can use this lesser quality and get away with it. And, oh, we can use smaller, smaller portions and get away with it. And it's almost endemic. As long as I've been in the business, and it's 37 years now, I see this over and over with a lot of these big chains, is they'll buy something. They don't know what they got. All they know is they, the money guy is saying, we've got, to, we've got to cut the cost. And the first thing they cut is quality. And, 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 you, and you see that. And then they'll cut you know, portioning. And then they'll cut labor. And then they, so it's kind of a, a natural spiral that I have seen, this is just my view uh, of different things that happen. And I think that, you know, some of them recover from that. Some of them get it like, oh yeah, we went too far. But I, I think in a lot of those scenarios, you, you have, and it's one, not that, that uh, you can't improve a company, not that you can't make you, you better decisions on buying, not that, especially when you get a big, big company, you can make, you can, the leverage you can make on, on, on buying the same product for cheaper than I can get it. So that's that's a, where you start to get quality, but it's when the short term thinking where they just go, oh, we can this. They're using seven dollar a pound stuff. We can use two dollar a pound stuff. We'll marinate it like crazy, and people won't know. Well, again, people eventually people know. You know, the I think the human mouth is the greatest computer uh, in the, in, on the planet when it comes to quality. And I think that 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 commitment to the customer is what's lost. That relationship with the customer versus the, you know, marketing department. A lot of these scenarios like you talk about, they'll come in and buy a chain that's had no marketing budget. And then they start cutting all the good stuff and they start losing sales. And then they, somebody comes up with a brilliant idea. Oh, we need a marketing department. Let's spend five to 8% on marketing. 
Well, if they had just left that in the quality of the food and the quality of the people, they wouldn't have needed it. But I, I think I, I appreciate the fact that there's this is a big industry. It's very complicated. It gets more complicated every day, especially in California. So you've got to make pivots and moves. But I think the minute you start thinking that you can outsmart the customer or, or that you can just cut quality and you'll use marketing to get the, 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 the customer count back, I, I think it's a downward spiral. I, I think it's one of those things that you know, I don't want to be in that business. Well, obviously, you've been in business for a long time. I think you said 36 years. Um, you've got employee number one still working for you. I mean, you th- there's not many people that can say the same thing. I mean, Bill Gates got rid of his co-founder pretty quickly. You know, uh, these things just don't work out. Like, how have you retained employee number one? Well, I think with all the employees is to understand there there are people, they have lives, they have spouses, they have kids, they have different things. Our number one rule when it comes to employees is to, as often as we can, we'll say, yes, hey, I need two weeks off because I'm going to go have a family outing. Or, you know what, I need Friday off because there's somebody I want to see. They're going to be at this party and I need that off. We always say yes, because we know that's an important thing. This flexibility is probably the single best asset we have as far as maintaining people. And then you get other people where I think, you know, I have a, a, a partner now. I added, I made Patty Rebellis, uh, who was with me for 30 years. I made her a, a partner several years ago because she has been with me for so long and she is part of the company. So you, you look at other people like that. I've helped my guys buy houses, whatever it takes. You know, it's, it's a, it's, not necessarily a, a pure family, but it's definitely a camaraderie where we're going to help them in their life wherever we can. And, and they, it comes back. They, they, they stay. I, average time of Pukita Mas, I believe, is over 22 years. And we have oof, probably 10 or 15 uh, over 30 years. Wow. I mean, that, that's unheard of in hospitality for anybody that's wondering. Um, most of the time, you would see people churn in less than a year. Uh, I mean, restaurants chew people up and spit them out. Um, and the fact that you're able to offer that kind of flexibility must mean that you're constantly looking at optimizing the schedules because we all know there's a lot of, a lot of elements that go into scheduling a restaurant. You know, open, close, <laughs> busy time. That's tough. And you obviously, so when you're saying yes to people for time off, you also have to think of the troops that are back on the front lines when they're getting hammered during a busy time period, like lunch or dinner. Um, How do you manage that? Well, cross-training. You know, uh, in in a lot of situations, there's one person has one job, they stand there, and that's what they're supposed to do. Well, it's it's not common sense in 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 restaurants our size and and our our complexity. We have to cross-train everybody. You know, um, and so uh, our dishwashers know how to prep the food, you know, and our uh, our prep guys know how to to work the, the line. Our 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 managers know how to work the line if necessary. It's it's a constant cross training. So you have what you need. Now, if, some, if somebody needs time off and you, you can't replace them, and, you know, sometimes you replace them with somebody and it costs a little overtime. But sometimes you, you can't. And all like. More recently, where you, you, it's more difficult to find people. We've been very fortunate, but other restaurants can't find people. We learn how to work. We learn how to maintain the, the pace and maybe have to work a little slower. And we'll just tell people, yeah, you know what? It's going to take an extra 10 minutes a day. You know what? Uh, instead of 15 minutes ready on the phone, we'll say, you know what? Come in 30 minutes, you know, because we have to, we have to adjust to everything. And it, it's a daily focus. We have to do that. And I, I think that by, by cross-training everybody, so it's not just one person doing one thing, I, I think it makes it a much more flexible environment and, and allows you to help, help give the employees more flexibility in their own personal lives. When you look back at the 36 years um, and you kind of fast forward to now, is this the most difficult time ever to own a restaurant in, in California? I'm trying not to think about it. Uh, it is, it is absolutely, you know, one of those things where you, you have to just get up every day and go, all right, I got to take it on whatever it's going to do. You got to take it on. Yes. This is the most impossible time because there it's coming from all fronts and people don't realize we just came out of a, a two year 
um, big hit where, you know, uh, not only for, for scheduled employees, but, you know, uh, your costs have gone through the roof and, so, and spiking like last summer, my beef spikes a hundred percent. It doubled for three months. And, you know, there's, you can't raise your prices fast enough to accommodate that. So sometimes you have to absorb it and absorb it means, you know, you gotta, uh, you gotta lose some money on a couple items for a while. If, if, and you don't want to do that, you don't, but you don't want to lose customers either. So it's, it's a really, it's one of the trickiest times because there is no right decision every single day. You've got to get up every day, look at today, look at next week, and then make the best decision you can make. But I wouldn't second guess anybody on any decisions they've made in the last two years, because you have to do what you can to survive and to make it through this. And I think it's made it incredibly difficult because we don't know. We, we for the longest time, we didn't know when this was going to end. We didn't, and it's still not ended, you know, in people's minds, there's still people afraid to go back in. So I think as, as they want to come back in, I think we've been very fortunate, you know, we just had the two best weeks we've had in two years, but I think that it is really going to be coming down to everybody understand that uh, this thing is not over and this is going to have a long-term effect on all of us for several years to come and I'm hoping somebody in government is listening because they need to understand that they, they've got to help the small businesses out more than they have. So obviously we're seeing the impact of, you know, some call it transitory, but I think most people are kind of over that word um, inflation. We're seeing commodity prices rising at just record highs. Um, we also have that whenever there's inflation, there's obviously wage pressure. How are you, I mean, we all know, you know, the pizza analogy of, of costs, right. Where, you know, you've got 30 to 40% in labor, 30 to 40% of food cost. Uh, you know, how is this dynamic pizza pie of cost? How is that? How are you uh, growing this pie? <laughs> like, how are you absorbing all of this? Because it just, when I look from the outside, I, I look at it and I go, this has got to be the absolute worst time to own a restaurant. Yeah. I think it's, it's it definitely not, uh, a time for um, um, for people who want to get into the restaurant business as a hobby, you know, which is n- never a good idea. But for those of us who've been in the business, it's like it's like being a farmer. You know, the weather's going to change. Um, things go get better some months, get get worse. Right now, from a cost standpoint, it's it's absolutely ridiculous because the energy prices have made every delivery cost us more. And so all of our main items are going up. We have to raise our prices at some point. And we are, we're being extremely careful as to how and when we raise the prices, hoping that, that this, uh, these gas guzzling stuff will go down. But I think that we have to understand that prices are going to go up. We're going to have to pivot and, and, and maybe make some more dishes, maybe make some new items to, where people can have fun with it. But I think that there's no diff- more difficult time I have seen because I haven't had enough time to analyze the last two years. Most restaurateurs aren't looking back at that where, you know, we were almost out of business for the first three weeks of the pandemic and, and people were doing that. And then, you know, slowly but surely we, we learned to pivot and do different things. And there was some government money that not nearly enough and didn't last nearly as long, but it, you know, you just get up and you go, okay, that we, the only choice we have is success. Because if you're going to wallow in self-pity or worry about failure, you're going to die soon. And that's not, and I mean, the business will. You really got to think, okay, how do I make it work? And every day, I'm lucky to have a good team and, uh, and people with me, you know, to bounce things off of. So because we talk it out, we figure it out, and, and, and we decide on a direction. I think that most restaurant operators uh, that I know um, are, are like farmers, you know, this is what they love to do. This is what they do. This is why they want to be in the business, you know, and, and it's, it's not something, you know, that, that you, I, uh, there are investment bankers that go, oh, we'll take this and we'll flip it and do all this. That's eh, okay. But for most people in the restaurant business, most individuals, they like, cause they like people. They love customers. They like employees. They love making people smile and happy and they love cooking good food. And, you know, it's the love of the business that keeps most of us going. I love my, this business. I love customers. 
even when they're not having a good day <laughs> and they're taking and they're taking it out on me. You know, yeah. I'm still looking at that person. Go, okay, how do I get them back? Hundred percent, hundred percent. It reminds me. It, it reminds me of something uh, that people say sometimes about the difference between kind of a concept, right? Where they've designed this experience, but it feels shallow and inauthentic, right? And versus a restaurant where you're like, where there, it's warm, it's inviting, people are friendly, the food is good quality, the service is dependable, you know what to expect, you get it repeatedly. There's a difference between going into a concept, you know, that's got 100 units and feels like the people working there are just as strangers to the brand as you are uh, versus your restaurants. And so, I mean, I, I, when I look back at all the things you've had to go through with the pandemic, um, you know, a lot of the social unrest, now we've got inflation. It just seems like it's like hit after hit after hit. What are the one or two things that you think the government can do at this point to maybe help the restaurants? And maybe we should look at it from a California perspective, since that's where your majority of your operations are. But if you want to throw a federal thing in there, that's fine. But like, what could government do to help businesses survive in an unparalleled time? Well, it's a good question. First of all, there's a, the Restaurant Recovery Act that uh, was sort of um, uh, not well executed. And uh, it looks like they may bring that back to help restaurants, because it's not just that you lost money during the pandemic or, or you didn't make as much or that you took on you know, more debt. It, it's it's that, that energy that we need to continue. But there's no doubt that none of this was anybody's fault here. Restaurant operators that did not create the, the problem. But there, there, is, there are some solutions. Government should look at every opportunity they can. I know that in California, a lot of them, they've made it easier for restaurants to use parking lots as, as, um, as dining rooms. And I think that's okay, except that maybe in residential neighborhoods. And, and, and you can you know, sell some things to go that you couldn't sell to go before. But I, I think that because inflation helps government, you know, we have to raise our, our prices, our sales. They get more in sales tax. That's why California has a $50 billion surplus. I mean, that's one of the reasons. I'm sure there's many. But there's so much surplus in the money. I think it's incumbent upon government to, to offer us ways to, for restaurants to benefit from some of that. And I think that you know the, the PPP program was nice, but it wasn't enough because they all thought it was going to be a, a quicker excuse me, a quicker hit. But I think that government should be doing everything they can to help small business and to help restaurants because, you know, restaurants are so unique. You know, the um, maybe some restaurants can make 20 percent, but I think that the average and I know that the average uh, profit margin for restaurants across the nation is about 5 percent. And and there's some that make eight to 10 percent There's some that that make more, uh, some especially if they're serving alcohol. But on, a, on that kind of a margin, you can't make a lot of mistakes. And boy, during the pandemic, it, you know, it just that 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 five percent was hit hard. Were so you I think, scared? Were you scared during the pandemic? Um, I was resigned to if it got worse, what was going to happen? I was going to, you know, because I, I it was one of those things where I felt that, um, yeah, this thing could put me out of business. Yes, this thing could put me out of business, and. And then what do I do with the, my people that are working for me? And, and I, I, you know, I, I figured, okay, I, I told my wife, I said, okay, we're going to have to move. We may need to get a smaller place. And, you know, and she was fully, completely on board. So we didn't know. And a lot of restaurant people, a lot of people just said, you know what, we, ha- we have to figure this out. Can you and, find a time though in your life where you've ever felt this close to failure? And I'm assuming it'd probably be earlier in the, in the life of the brand, but was there any other time where you felt like, oh, wow, this could be it? Uh, only the, the, the day of the earthquake, I think in 94, uh, when ever, the earthquake hit so hard, I, I walked out of my house thinking I'm out of business. You know, I, I, there's no way the restaurants survived that. And only, I only had three at the time, but I, I went to each one of them. And luckily uh, the restaurants by noon, we had the restaurants operating uh, again, and we were sold out of food for the next two days. We sold out by six o'clock at night. Wow. So, I remember that earthquake. That was a, 
an incredible amount of force. I mean, I still, to this day, I was a child, but I still, to this day, remember the story of the CHP officer that drove off the oh. over, overhang, that, that, yeah. or over ramp. Uh, and, and it just, it was just that, that everybody was doing everything they could. And I know, but I went to the restaurant, my original restaurant, and the music was off because we didn't have a lot of uh, electricity. And so I put a, a radio there with the thing. And it's just the, the look on people's faces and the feeling, you know, I, I, it was just one of those things where it's like, everybody was in shock because well, we had thing, a lot of aftershocks too, if you remember, yes, like, well, was we like, did. it was like, oh, <laughs> is this going to be as hard as that one? Well, <laughs> it, to me, it was like, uh, in, in our little house that we had, um, little 900 square foot house, it felt like a giant had picked us up this house and treated like a matchbox and was just banging it back and forth. So it was just, it was, we ran over to my, my wife's parents' house to see how they were doing because her father was in a wheelchair. And so we, that's, that was our first thought. And then when that all done, then I went back to the restaurants, but I literally thought I was out of business and I think, okay, now what do I do? And I think with the pandemic here, it's the same thing. It's, it's like, okay, uh, if I get put out of business by this thing, what am I going to do? You know, I, I'm not a, a spring chicken anymore, but I've still got work in me. And luckily, I've been able to sort of channel it into our own restaurants and, and making them stay safe and focusing on how we're going to grow. And, you know, I'm just at the point where I'm starting to think about strategy and new items and that anymore. But I think we're away, a, a, a bit away from some creating some, some new uh, items because I really want to focus on uh, on the team and everybody that we have working with us. We've been really, really fortunate. We haven't lost any employees. I kept everybody working. And I think that that's the, 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 that's served us really well. I mean, um, I, I spent a lot of money, everything we had to sort of keep everybody working, but it's paying off because we're not looking for people right now. Well, so let's go back to what makes, in my opinion, I don't want it to speak for you, uh, Piquito Masa special. You know, you're in a, I would say if, if there's a foodie area of, of California, I would say it's Los Angeles. Okay. Um, real people live there. That's what yes. I'm trying to say. And you're in probably because of the location, you're probably in the most competitive segment of that Mexican food. You know, maybe you could throw Chinese up there as a pretty competitive, but not really. I mean, there's really one player in Chinese uh, fast casual that's, that's got, you know, scale, but yeah, you stand apart. Like when I talk to people that know Piquito Moss, you're mentioned in the same breath as in and out So, and there's celebrities that actually go and eat there. And like, you wouldn't even know, but that's like one of their favorite restaurants too. Like, so how have you been able to kind of grow this brand without being kind of a self-promoter? I mean, you could do a Google search for Piquito Moss and find maybe one page of results, maybe two. I mean, you know, you don't do a lot of press. You don't do a lot of, self things in fact there's a lot of these you know who is mr moss like who is this guy you know so can you walk me through how you've been able to kind of grow this iconic brand with kind of under under the radar i think that any money that i would have put toward marketing or self-promotion i put on the plate and i think the food will always speak for me and and the service will always speak for me and i you know i've never been you know one that had wanted to jump in front of a camera or anything. What I wanted to do is, is, is create an environment where people are happy, where they come. And, you know, I think one of my favorite stories about um, restaurants is come from the meaning of the word, the origination of the word restaurant. Uh, and it's a, a French word, restaurant. And Merriam-Webster's dictionary, I, I tried to look up the etymology of the word. My daughter focused me on this. And the etymology is that there was a guy named Boulanger in 1765 who couldn't get into any of the food unions in Paris. And the, the baker's union, the butcher's union, he couldn't get into any of them. So he created his own little shop where he made stews and soups uh, because it, it wasn't tr trampling anybody else's territory. But he put up a little sign in his window because it was a road coming into Paris. And he said, weary travelers, come in and my food will restore you. And that is, to me, the, the perfect uh, metaphor for what restaurateurs are. That we like to, our food will restore people. On, they're, uh, 
they're having a tough time in the morning. They're at work. They got stuff going on. They got pressure. They got worries. They come to a restaurant and, and we restore them physiologically, you know, where, and uh, with the food and, and emotionally with a nice environment and a smile. It's very interesting. Somebody asked me the other day, I said, what, what business are you in? I said, well, actually, I'm in, I'm in the business of serving people with low blood sugar because, <laughs> because you know, people come in and they're hungry and, and they're, they're, they're really hungry. And boy, it's, it's a really tense moment sometimes. But, you know, we, I, I enjoy taking that customer who's really hungry and making them happy. And I think that one of the things that about uh, uh, that restaurant and, and thing is that I've, I've never needed to be popular. I, I've never needed to be that person. I, I've, I've always liked the idea of, of the brand speaking for itself. Uh, I have no problem telling people what I did. I'm very proud of what we've done. We've accomplished a lot. You know, we, we invented our own tortilla press so that we can make the corn tortillas, but we also spend a lot of money on creating fresh tortillas for the flour tortillas as well. We spend money on that. We, we, that to me is the best advertising we can possibly do is that look at the product. You know, um, Kevin is just somebody who loves Mexican food. I fell in love with Mexican food when I was 17 and I had my first carnitas taco at two o'clock in the morning, uh, an Alvarado on sunset. And man, did that change my life. And so I just, I love Mexican food. I want to honor Mexican food the best I can. And I think that what I really want to focus on is how can, how can we make it better from here? What else can we do to make it more fun to come in and have a burrito a poquito mas? Did, did fast casual, I know that there's always been fast food, but did fast casual high quality exist when you started? Um, I don't think so. I think there were a couple of people that were doing taco stands. Uh, and I don't know if they were called fast casual at the time. Um, I know La, La Salsa and Howdy Caverns was, was around. And there was, um, I, I guess at the same time, I had never met him, but uh, down in um, um, San Diego, um, Rubio's had, had just started about eight months before me, but I'd never been there until about five years later. They, they were similar in a lot of ways, but I, the, the words I put on the front of my restaurant um, when the day I opened was fresh Mexican cuisine because it wasn't fast food. And I remember when I was behind the counter, somebody came in and, and they weren't getting the food as quickly as they wanted it to. And they said, hey, you know, I thought this was fast food. And it was about line of about three or four people. And I said, I'm sorry, we don't serve fast food. We serve fresh food as fast as we can. And right. that, seemed, that seemed to hit a mark. So, but the, the, whoever this person was, if they're hearing this, the person behind him said, write that down. <laughs> wow. And so I said, oh, okay. And then, and that became our slogan simply because it was just something that, no, we, we weren't fast food. I didn't want to serve uh, a food that was filled with a bunch of chemicals or food that you had to pretend was food or, you know, fill it with a bunch of starch, you know, and that's why our burritos, our steak burrito is steak. It's steak and cheese, a little bit of salsa and guacamole, but there's no rice and beans in our, in our, in our pure burritos because that's the burrito that we wanted to serve. Yeah. A lot of places stuff it with, with carbs just to get their food costs down, but we've never done that with our burritos. We want to serve an honest burrito. And I think that that's what we've done. Did you, did you contemplate opening? So obviously your background, you had hospitality background. Did you contemplate opening a full service restaurant? Like what, what made you choose other than it sounds like cash was a constraint at that time, but like, other than that, was there anything else that weighed into why you did this versus maybe a sit down restaurant? Yeah. Well, definitely cash was an issue. Um, You know, I, I got Poquito Mas, the original one, open for $11,000. And that's construction and equipment and everything. And that was, you know. Adjusted for inflation. Adjusted for inflation. inflation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But it, what basically, you know, I, I, I knew what I could do. I didn't have enough money to afford a lot of employees. You know, I'd been in the business for about a decade. I'd worked for other companies. So I knew how to do this, but I want to do it on my own. At the time, I also wanted to take Mexican food to a different level because in 1984, most Mexican food, you would go and it was just a plate of of sauce with a bunch of stuff underneath the sauce and the cheese. Everything was kind of melted together. And so I wanted to take Mexican food up a notch where we said, okay, I want you to see what you're getting. 
I want you to see how we're making it. I want you to see the enchiladas, but you don't, we're not, we don't have to cover everything up or, or just throw a bunch of rice and beans on the plate to make it look like you got a lot. So we wanted to separate everything out to make it a much simpler, easier to see kind of a food because I think a lot of people at the time just thought, oh, excellent food is too heavy. And it, it's not if you eat in the correct portion. So we just wanted to sort of make it easier for people to see the food. And again, uh, stay away from uh, the carbs as much as possible. People want the carbs, we'll give it to them. But, you know, I wanted the, a, a nice protein burrito that people could be proud of, that we could be proud of. And at the same time, more importantly, they want to come back for at the same time, we also have a huge vegetarian following because our beans have always been vegetarian and our rice is vegetarian. And all these things we have, the black beans, you know, our tortillas, everything we have, the, the corn tortillas, flour tortillas, serves the, the, the vegetarian audience. And so they have been a huge part of our growth because we will give them what they want. We won't we won't put junk in, in anything we have. And, you know, there's no sugar in our food, you know, except for maybe a salad dressing or something. We don't put sugar and stuff because one of the things you find out with a lot of places, they'll put sugar to make it more, seem more filling, but then you don't feel good like an hour later. And the one thing I wanted to, to do is make food that an hour after you ate, you felt, you felt fueled up, not filled up. So, Obviously, you've grown, but you haven't grown at some crazy, um, you know, growth multiple. I mean, you're you're not looking to be the next 200 restaurant chain, but, you know, you have goals. I mean, when you first started the company, it probably was survival, the first restaurant, keeping it open, making sure you could make a living off of it. It's still survival now. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely with the way things have been going. But when, you know, was there a time where you actually had a number of restaurants that you opened or have you never looked at it as far as units? Have you always looked at it in terms of how they're operating individually? Always, always, you know, the, if, if, and again, we've been around long enough to where we've lost a couple because of leases, leases run out, landlords double the rent. There's nothing you can do. You know, there's the, the, you know, uh, I'm not going to keep a, a, a location around simply because it has our name on it. If it's going to cost me $10,000 a month to do that. I know the one, you know, I had one restaurant, I'll just say it was about 800 square feet. I'll tell you where it was uh, about $8,500 a month in rent. And, and the landlord came back and said, you know what? I now want 20 after, after 20 years, right? I want 20. So it's like, okay, we, we don't serve uh, marijuana. We don't serve, uh, we don't sell diamonds. So we couldn't afford that. You know, and that happens. It just happens. It's part of the business. You know, I don't want to ever lose a restaurant. I don't ever want to not have a, a restaurant go away. But, you know, the longer you're in business, the more reality uh, teaches you lessons. A lot of people um, think that there's these these ratios or these percentages of sales that you should always try and be at or under. You know, I've heard a lot of times with food, you know, if you're in the, under 30, you're doing great. Labor, if you're under 35, you're doing great. Uh, rent roll. I've heard numbers as high as like 12%, as low as like 4%. Like, do you have, if somebody was want to start their own restaurant, do you have a number on the rent side that if it's, if, if it's higher than this, it's going to be very hard to survive? Um, it really depends on the, the location and the area, but I wouldn't ever want to pay more than 6%. I mean, if it's 8% in a phenomenal area with incredible traffic, but when you get in above 10%, I think you're in for, for some problems. And unless you're serving, you know, um, meager portions or, uh, you know, lower quality food, you know, I think that you, you, I think that if the reasonable rent to me, I, I like to always keep it below 8%. Uh, well, and seems... I, I like 6%. Yeah, even 6%. More. Yeah. That sounds like a good number. I mean, the way I've looked at it and in, in looking at different numbers for restaurants is that, you know, with food being a commodity and labor being kind of all over, you know, there's always minimum raise increases and, you know, you obviously have the competitive market to deal with. So labor as well is kind of hard to keep at a certain percentage. So if you can't secure a, a rent or a lease number that, that can absorb some of the ebbs and flows of those, you, you're definitely going to be in trouble. 
Yeah, I think the one thing I would say is that 20 years goes by quickly. <laughs> you know, because it used to be the standard, we, oh, it's 10 plus two five-year options, right? Well, yep. that's not enough now. I'm in my 37th year at my original location. You know, and the rent increases, have, you know, they have a, a small percentage every every year. Boy, that adds up after 37 years. So you want to negotiate, you know, uh, a, a sort of a, a, a cap at some point if you can, but at least uh, don't go for just, you know, to me, always get the options, get as many options as you can. I want 10 years plus, plus four or five year options. I, I want, I don't want to spend a bunch of money building a restaurant only to be put out of business because the landlord after 20 years says, oh yeah, I need twice the amount that you can afford. And it's just, it's, it's just endemic in the, our business. I don't blame landlords necessarily or big companies because they buy the, they buy land, they build it and they want it to produce. And so, but the longer you're in business, the more difficult it is for you to hold that rent percentage down. Um, I've been able to do it. I've been able to keep my rent percentage relatively low, below the 6% line across the board. But I think it's, it's something where if somebody's going in, get 10 years, or if you're going to do 10 years, get options, get, get, just get as many options as you can. Even if you're a little guy and you don't have a lot of history, get the option, you know, because how's that hurt the landlord? You know, if I'm doing well, I want to continue, you know, and if I'm not, they, they, they can leave, but get as many options as you can. Who was your mentor? Um, like, how did you get into hospitality and how did you find a love for this? Um, it's a tough industry and there's a lot of people, especially, you know, these days where I, I see a lot of young people trying to go away from this industry. Like, so, you know, what was your start? You know, you're a young 21, 22 year old man. Like who was your mentor? Well, I had original mentor was when I was 16, I was working at a hot dog hamburger stand in North Hollywood and the guy named Bob Grossman um, was my boss. And I remember him coming up to me, you know, I'm working there after school and I'm doing this stuff. And he looks at me and, you know, um, uh, there was some, a couple like uh, hot dog and, and taco trays that, that, you know, um, that just looked out of place. So I, I grabbed one of them and I said, uh, I think this may have been used. So I threw it away. And he says, okay, that's fine if it was used, but what if it wasn't used? So he says, don't, don't waste things, Kevin. Don't waste anything. This is a penny business. You throw away the penny, you throw away the business. If something is bad, throw it away. But, but man, do everything you can to make sure everything stays in order. Keep everything organized. Don't let anything fall on the ground. You know, because this is a very, again, it was that penny business, he said. And, you know, he was a great man. He was my original mentor. And then I think there was several different companies I worked for that I really liked um, some of the people there. Mostly from a f front of the house thing, there was a guy named Mr. Burke at Michelli's in Hollywood when I worked there. Mr. Burke had been around about 60 years, 70 years at the time. He taught me how to handle the front of a restaurant and how to handle customers, how to anticipate, how to read them, how to look at you know, everything around when you're passing by the table. You know, he really helped me focus on the, the customer service aspect of it. He was a great man. And it was just one of those things where I felt very honored to have, to be with him at that time. And then I worked for all different kinds of companies, you know, including Velvet Turtle, you know, where there were some great chefs. And I, I loved working with the chefs. That was the most fun. Um, and I think that, you know, I picked up a little bit everywhere along the way. I, I was very dyslexic. So college wasn't going to be in the cards for me because you have to read books if you're going to go to college. And I didn't read my first book until I was 21. And so I had two great skills. I could outwork anybody and I could get along with everybody. And it turns out that's all I really needed at the time. And, and so to me, it was fun. Just, I love the restaurant business because you get to work with people and it's just, it's a fun people business. And you get, you, mostly in the restaurant business, you're making people happy. And to get back to that restoration concept. What do you think Friday and Saturday night is? People getting out to restore themselves from a tough week, you know, because they're, they're going out because they want to they want to feel better. And I think that's what restaurants do. And it, it's sort of a kinetic feeling you get from the customers when you're in that environment. You're, you, they, that transfers over to you because, oh, they feel really good about the food and the atmosphere. And it just it, it transfers over to where you feel good about it.
So did you have, if you weren't in the hospitality industry, would you have gone a different direction? Like, do you ever have those kind of, you know, reflections where you think if I wasn't the founder and CEO of Pequeno Moss, what would I be? Who would I be? What would I do? Only when people ask me that question, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I don't, you know, um, no, my first, my, no, never, you know, um, my, my first job I got my mom, you know, she was a hardworking kind of a most of the time single mom with seven kids, five boys in Hollywood in the sixties. And at one point she came home and she said, I need all you guys to go get a job because we need, we need more food. So we all went out. I got a job as a janitor at 13, working at a real estate office. And I came home. I told mom, I got a job and I'm a janitor. And she looked at me. She grabbed me by my collar. She goes, good. She goes, you'd be the best janitor you can be. Because I'm going to tell you three things. You'd be the best at what you're doing and you'll get noticed and you'll get moved up quickly. Just get whatever job it is, do it the best. And she said, number two, you be nice to everybody. You'd be the most polite person on the planet so that everybody wants to work with you. She says, and number three, no whining. I don't care how hard the job is. Don't come home and whine. Don't whine at the, don't, at the officer. Don't whine. Just move on and keep going. So I kind of listened to her on that note. No whining. You know, just That's keep great going. Advice. Yeah, it was great yeah. advice for a mom of seven kids. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had a, a very similar upbringing where, you know, my dad taught me a very valuable lesson after I washed the car half, you know what, and uh, he came back out and he said, you're going to learn a valuable lesson today on why you should do things the right the first time. And I had to rewash the entire car. And um, I remember that. And when I went into the military, I remember thinking to myself, like, if I'm going to be anywhere, I might as well try and be the best of where I am, even if it's not the perfect situation, the perfect job, the perfect opportunity. And so that that advice your mom gave you resonated with me for sure. Well, it did for me. And I got to tell you, within two months of being the janitor, they, they moved me up into being a switchboard operator. My voice hadn't changed yet. And, and I, I worked out well on the on the switchboard at this office. So um, <laughs> and everything went uphill from there. So, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. But no, my, listen, my mom was a hardworking nurse all her life. And she was a good if there's any mentor in my life, it would be my my mother's work ethic. Uh, and so she worked like crazy, took care of us. And even when she was on vacation, she would move the furniture by herself and paint the house inside. So she was a, she had a terrific work that got a great, great, great uh, example for me to follow. So I've been having conversations with friends about retirement, not that I'm near that point in my life, but it was the question was, you know, what would you do if you were retired? And I couldn't come up with a good answer other than I'd probably figure out something else to work on because I don't look at work as... Um, drudgery or uh, punishment. I, I enjoy working and seeing a project go from A to Z. Obviously you're in a different age and stage in life than I am, but you know, I sense the same thing from you, at least in our conversations in the past of, you know, I could see you doing this to the very end. Is, is that the goal? I, I, I have so many things that I want to accomplish in life. You know, my greatest challenge is not coming up with things that I want to do. It's coming up with time to spread on the things that I want to do. I love the restaurant business. I also love um, um, speaking to, to school groups about communication and different things like that. I, I love helping people solve problems. I, I think I love the restaurant business. I, you know, I've never, I didn't get into it with an exit strategy. I didn't get into it. So I'm going to do this, build this and, 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 and get out of here. You know, so to me, it, it's, it's never been that clear vision of an exit strategy. There's been other opportunities, but I, I don't regret any of them, uh, yes and no, because I still love what I do. And, and I think that as long as I can make a living, uh, and then I'll, I'll wait until we're ready for the next move. We'll see, you know, there's a couple of people that want to do some in Texas right now, you know, so maybe that's a good opportunity. You know, I, I personally... Um, and physically fit to keep going, but I don't believe I have. Um, I don't. I don't think I have an expiration date, you know, for for me. But I I look at every opportunity that comes my way and say I look at my age. I think if anything, uh, 
I'm, I'm spending more time with my wife right now of 35 years. And, you know, we still look for opportunities for ourselves to like go hiking and spend time with that. I'll balance everything else out. Making Patty a partner was the best thing I did because that's allowed me more time to work on different projects. So I will, I will definitely, she's amazing. Yeah. She's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah. You've been very gracious with your time. Um, You know, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm glad we got to do this. I feel like your story is so compelling. It's like a real rags to riches. If people, you know, dig in and, and try and learn about, you know, starting something from nothing, this is exactly what you did. And you could have taken it a lot of different ways. You could have licensed it to anyone that would pay a fee. And there may be a hundred of these things performing average, but instead you have a small group of restaurants that create warmth and amazing food and experiences and people were very loyal. I think the reason your sales have bounced back so fast is people know what to expect with Piquito Moss. It's going to be high quality, good experience. And they know that you are doing the best you can with all these outside forces. Whereas others, I think are probably going to shutter. And, uh, you know, you might be finding a lot of real estate opportunities in the next couple of years uh, that, that might hit that 6% mark too. They have, they have presented them to me many in the last year and a half. Uh, this is where I want to scream out to government. Don't let those rest. Don't let my competition close. Don't let my competition close. Help every little restaurant survive because this is a lifestyle that we live. It's not a hobby that we do. And for restaurant operators have so much emotion into what they're living uh, the, the life. So when I see a restaurant close, it's, uh, it makes me want to cry sometimes because I know how much work people put into it. So dear government, don't let my competition close. Help us all. And by, 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 by focusing on what you can do for us, not how much more tax dollars we can create for you. Well, we're going to end with that. And uh, we'll definitely make sure to highlight that um, on our, on our show clips. So thanks again, Kevin, really appreciate it. I'm going to,